0: Once again, Muslim terrorists, a terrorist a slaughtered innocent Islamic people, extremist now in control of the country, the rise brand of Islamo-Nazis, Islam is a flash, America, these Muslim extremists are, uh, are alive and well, they are not dead, and their video is not gratuitous, and it certainly is not irrelevant, it is a warning.
1: Welcome to the Truth About Muslims podcast, the official podcast of the Zwemmer Center for Muslim Studies, where we help to educate you beyond the media. Here are your hosts, Howard and Trevor.
0: You are listening to Truth About Muslims podcast. Thank you guys for listening.
2: All right, this is uh, part two of our four part series on Islamic fundamentalism.
0: Right in the studio, we got the privilege to have uh, uh, Nabil Jabour, mm-hmm. Doctor Nabil Jabour, who's expert on funda- fundamentalism. Yeah,
2: Isla- Islamic fundamentalism. That's is, his. That sounds better.
0: Yeah, <laughs> fundamental Islam. There. Islamic fundamentalism. Craziness. I mean, that's what he did his doctorate on. Yeah. So, and uh, he is a uh, um, a Christian, um, Arab Christian, Arab Christian, born in Syria, Syria. Right. Lived in Lebanon. Lebanon. Right. So he definitely has this insider's perspective that uh, we get to listen to. It's pretty awesome, right? Hey, but we uh, just uh, kind of a technical thing. We just wanted to apologize for some of the sound quality. Uh, Just uh, sometimes recording is not as uh, smooth as it as it needs to be basically what it comes
2: down to is howard wasn't here and uh he said the sound would be fine just go for it and i messed the whole thing up
0: (laughs) Uh, apparently i just realized that i'm the sound engineer yeah
2: i don't know why he just now realized that i'm pretty sure that was in the uh, initial agreement
0: right right with the agreement what have you
2: the the, the fact that he knows sound and i don't
0: But anywho, so uh, just but, bear, uh,
2: just bear with the the audio. You'll get used to it, and we're getting some software to clean it up. And, right. Uh, it so if you just listen, again. if
0: you listen to part one and you were just like, "Man, this audio quality was you know suffering," I'm going to re-upload it, corrected, fixed, polished, made it a little bit prettier. It's going to be definitely a bunch easier to listen to. So if you wanted to listen to it again, have at it. If you if you skipped it because it was just too hard to listen to, uh, then listen to it again. And then we're going to do the same thing for all the rest of the podcast because we believe. The content is so important. We've been sitting here for the last two
2: hours working on the uh, sound quality due to my not knowing anything about sound. (laughs) Right. Hey, I'll admit it. When I'm wrong, I'm wrong. But Mm. I'm not
0: going anywhere. So this is, uh, I mean, hopefully the sound quality will be pristine from here on out. From
2: now on, if Howard's on vacation, I am too.
0: (laughs) Right. So, but, all right. Let's get to it. Yep. So, uh, a little bit of a preview of what what's happening, so, or a little bit of a, a review of what happened in the last podcast. Uh, so, we're following, um, we're following the story of Sayyid Qutb. Sayed Qutb, right. And then uh, he basically gets to the point where he is uh, hanged. 1966 in
2: Egypt. Qutb is hanged in Egypt. He right. refuses to recant for right.
0: writing uh, milestones, milestones, right, which was passed out in pieces. Mm-hmm. from prison, mm-hmm. and it has become the, the the textbook. Yeah, I'd say the premier text. Right, of uh, fundamental uh, Islam at this point. Right. Um, and so now this is where our story picks up. Uh, we're going beyond... Kutub and moving on to.
2: Right. I think he ended last week. The question was, was there anyone there that was influenced by the death of Sayyid Kutub? And that's when right. Dr. Jabor mentions the, uh, blood of the martyrs. Right. See the, the church. Right. Well, we talked and, about the Islamic view was, right. what was it? The, it nourishes the roots. Right. Of the tree. The, the tree right. um, of Islam. So, yeah, there is a one, one guy in particular that was present, um, and greatly impacted in somebody that you've all heard of, whether or not you recognize his name or not you've heard of him right
0: and uh something just to say before it's like I really enjoy the way uh, uh Nabil, Nabil. Nabil, <laughs> Jabour. um just kind of breaks it down into a story like you're following these guys' lives and kind of seeing how all these uh, ideas are formed and how it's gained momentum mm-hmm. and I, I you know I, what surprised me is I think I actually did have kind of this feeling of um sadness, uh, when Kutub is hanged and just in my mind, I think, because I kind of, I, I kind of know where he was coming from in the beginning where, you know, he really just wanted to be close to God. Right. Right. And then he is encounter, he encounters all of these, you know, these injustices and how it it, it kind of mars him.
2: Yeah. And there's a common denominator, um, that I'm just now noticing here after studying these fellows for a while, We'll, we'll talk about it after we get through all of the sort of biographical approaches and looking at everybody. But there's a common link here that, that I didn't notice until here recently. And uh, it's, it's prison time and, and suffering while they're in prison for right. their belief systems. And that sort of creates almost a uh, fanaticism. Right. Well, it takes what might be started off as a reforming idea um, and then taking that into a fanatical idea. Right, because even though Sayyid Kutub never did anything um, fanatical, his certainly his text is what is producing a lot right. of it, a lot of it today. And I think that the fact that he wrote this in prison,
0: which is a crazy
2: stark contrast from the letters that Paul is writing in the New Testament from prison.
0: Oh yeah, absolutely. And and you know something that I think about that uh, these guys who are writing, you know, their their thoughts in prison, they must be thinking, is this worth me suffering for? Do I believe this so much that I'm willing to actually lose my life? And in the end, you see I've got to do that. I mean, he gives up his life. Right. Refuses to recant. And, and, and
2: we'll see now the impact of that on this particular young right. man.
0: Right. So without further ado, here we go. All right. So this show wouldn't be possible without sponsors.
2: And at this point in the show is where if you want to partner with us, we would put your ad. So if you want to be a part of the show... You want to partner with us. You like what we're doing. You want to be on our team, what have you. Bring this show to the world. Then email us and let us know. So after the death of Saeed Qutb, um, there's this guy, Ayman al-Zawahiri, who's the current leader of Al-Qaeda. How does the death of Saeed Qutb affect, or
1: does it have an effect on Ayman al-Zawahiri? Uh, Ayman Zawahiri was a university student when, in nineteen sixty-six, when Sayyid Qutb was hanged. Actually, the uncle of Ayman Zawahiri, the brother of his mother, was the lawyer of Sayyid Qutb. To start with, this lawyer was the student of Sayyid Qutb, and later on, his became, he became his lawyer. And so, can you imagine this lawyer every day? Coming back home to the extended family after spending several hours with Sayyid Qutb in prison, listening to him, and he comes and tells the extended family detailed stories about Sayyid Qutb and what he perceived about him as a, a pure Muslim who really loves God and wants to do the will of God. And so Ayman Zawahiri will sit and listen to these stories and absorb them, and with time, Sayyid Qutb became more and more one of his biggest heroes. And so then uh, when Sayyid Qutb was hanged in 1966, Ayman Zawahiri was leading a cell group, secret cell group at the university, and they were he was discipling these, these guys using the book Milestones, which was a banned book. So he has a direct impact on Zawahiri's life. Big time. Okay, so
2: how does Al-Qaeda come to be... what is the the beginnings of sort of Zawahiri's movement from being a student to where he is today yeah, as the we're talking leader. about
1: 1966 mm-hmm. while Al Qaeda came into existence in the 1990s so there's oh, yeah. a long period of time so during uh, the early 70s a movement started at the universities in Egypt called Al gamaat Al Islamiya where more and more students, the, the men were growing beards. Women started more and more covering their hair and wearing the hijab. Even an niqab which shows only the eyes, started appearing in Egypt. And Ayman Zawahri was very much involved in, the, in this movement at the universities. Okay, and so do these movements come out of a certain
2: theological school that come into Basically,
1: Egypt? they were influenced by Islamic fundamentalism and more specifically by Sayyid Qutb and Hassan al-Banna of the Muslim Brotherhood.
2: So the death of Sayyid Qutb and the death of Hassan al-Banna did nothing to stop these movements. On it the only contrary. fueled the fire.
1: On the contrary. Okay,
2: so what, what gets... Uh, Zawahiri and bin Laden, where do they come into play? Because eventually this they're this, the beginnings.
1: This comes later on. Uh, uh, Ayman Zawahiri finished his uh, medical school and became a physician, actually a surgeon. And But he was more of involved in religious activities and politics, religion, Islamism, political Islam, than practicing medicine. And with time, he started an organization, or he was involved in an organization called Jihad Organization. And he was in close ties with people who assassinated President Sadat uh, in 1981. And during the court proceedings, he was, of course, arrested along with many others. And during the court proceedings when the press was allowed to enter the court and witness the events because he was able to speak english he was bilingual he became the spokesman of the prisoners and uh, they were tortured by the police and uh, so his fame internationally started during these court proceedings when he was the spokesman of the prisoners Wow. So how does he go from prison? Uh, did, did they Were they attempting to uh, give him the death penalty as well? Uh, no, but something important happened. Uh, when he was imprisoned, an incident took place where uh, an officer in the prison slapped him on the face. Hmm. Right away, he slapped him back. This oh, is unthinkable. <laughs> in an Egyptian situation. So he became known as the man who slapped back. So he started becoming famous and recognized as, you know, somebody different by the prisoners. And then, uh, so he was tortured more than the others. His most painful experience was he betrayed his closest friend. Hmm. He cooperated with the police by telling them uh, of a way that they can arrest him. Well, when they he arrest turned him in his own friend. Yeah. yeah. Wow. Because the torture was unbearable. So they pro- they made him promises that if he will help in the arrest of this famous Muslim fundamentalist who was a very close, his perhaps one of his closest friends, They brought this man after the arrest and put him in the same cell with Ayman Zawahir. Oh, my. Yeah. So one of his most painful experiences that he wrote about by saying that uh, the most difficult thing in life is to be uh, the cause of betrayal. hmm. Of somebody who who is a very close friend. Well, they put them together in the prison, and that man tried to escape, and he got shot and killed. And he Later, he
2: probably feels responsible for the death of his yeah, friend.
1: Yeah. Later on, uh, he was released from prison, so he knew that life in Egypt is not safe anymore. Hmm. So he uh, he left and started uh, working. And with the Red Cross as a physician in uh, Peshawar, Pakistan. Okay. Osama bin Laden, in, at the same time, moved from Saudi Arabia, from Jeddah, you know, from Jeddah in Saudi Arabia, to Peshawar, and that's where they met for the first time.
2: So, what is what is drawing all of
1: these people from all over the Arab world to Peshawar at this point? Uh, That's a very good question, because at that time, the Russians were in war uh, with with the Taliban in Afghanistan, Mm -hmm. and uh, many uh, Muslim fundamentalists were volunteering to join uh, Muslim fundamentalist groups that are willing to fight the Soviets, the atheists. They looked at them as atheists. And so it was the best training situation for Muslim fundamentalists in warfare. And so the city of Peshawar was uh, full with Muslim fundamentalists. People can buy weapons. And, uh, you know, and at that time, the CIA was uh, empowering some of those groups. uh, And they were perceived as Mujahideen during President Reagan's time. Uh, And uh, uh, later on, uh, they felt betrayed that America, who was helping us, turned against us.
2: Yeah, I mean, I've read some of the articles that talk about uh, the Russians are the the disbelievers. And so, you know, the Americans are, are the Christians and the Muslims are coming together to fight against the disbelievers. And then once the Russians are gone... You know, America has no connection, and a lot of those
1: those Mujahideen are now the biggest problem for the United States. You reminded me of something very important, Trevor. Uh, at that time, Saddam Hussein invaded Kuwait, mm-hmm. and uh, uh, the United States government offered Saudi Arabia assurances that they will protect Saudi Arabia. Osama bin Laden had at that time a big number of Mujahideen who are available, who were trained in in guerrilla warfare against one of the biggest armies in the world, the Soviet army, Mm -hmm. and they believed they conquered them. And so he came to the royal family in Saudi Arabia, and his father, the father of Osama bin Laden, was... uh, the owner of a huge company that built palaces and mosques in Saudi Arabia and closely connected to the royal family. So Osama bin Laden came to the royal family and said, don't invite Americans to defend you. We will come, the Mujahideen will come from Afghanistan and we'll defend you. Of course, they didn't listen to him. They listened to uh, the United States government and so Osama bin Laden felt that the government of Saudi Arabia betrayed Muhammad the prophet by allowing foreigners to exist in in Saudi Arabia.
2: And just thinking about it from their their theological lens, it's as though God gave them this victory against the Russians and then the Saudi Arabia wouldn't trust God to give them victory against... That is
1: right. Wow. Uh, somebody was mentoring Osama bin Laden at that time, a Palestinian imam, his name is Azzam, A-Z-Z-A-M. And Osama bin, and Ayman Zawahri at the same time wanted to influence Osama bin Laden. So every now and then he'll write a paper and show it to him. And through these papers, he was influencing his thinking Azam was assassinated at one time and some people think that uh, Ayman Zawahiri was behind it in one way but he denies it and uh, during the funeral time he was there praising Azam. From that time on, Uh, Osama bin Laden and Ayman Zawahiri became close friends. Uh, Osama bin Laden provided the money and the contacts while Ayman Zawahiri provided the leadership of Al-Qaeda and they formed this organization called Al-Qaeda. In Arabic means the base. It used to be called Al-Qaeda Salba, the solid base. They dropped the word solid and kept the word base. And Ayman Zawahiri became man number two. So out of 12 men on the leadership team, that Osama bin Laden was heading, nine of them were Egyptians, and they were the men of Ayman Zawahiri.
2: So the show wouldn't be possible without sponsors.
0: And this week's sponsors are...
1: Zweimer Center. Zweimer Center.
0: Zweimer Center.
1: The Center? <laughs> Zweimer
2: Center.
0: And what does
2: the Zweimer Center do? Uh,
1: talks about Muslims yeah, and tells me, them me, me, on the me, computer me, that mother. we love you.
2: Very nice. The Swimmer Center equips the church to reach Muslims. The Swimmer Center has been educating people about reaching Muslims before it was cool. So we have the, the Muslim Brotherhood with Hassan Albana, which we talked about uh, before. We have Sayyid Qutb, and then we have Zawahiri in Azam, and now Bin Laden. And Bin Laden and Zawahiri become sort of the the figurehead is bin Laden of course yeah. he has the money he has the connections and all of this kind of happens in Peshawar fighting on you know not technically on behalf of the united states but we kind of look back in now cooperation. It's in cooperation with the united states against the russians so what does uh, what is al qaeda's strategy
1: from the beginning uh, st- their strategy was to force America to overextend itself. Uh, because the more it extends in itself in, in territory, the weaker it becomes. So when America finally became the enemy of Al-Qaeda, the, by the way, the primary enemy has always been Israel.
2: Okay, explain
1: that a little bit in more detail. What do you mean? The now, if you look India? at the Muslim world, uh, almost 1.7 billion Muslims in the world. They belong to different countries, different ethnicities, different colors. Uh, but four things all Muslims tend to agree about, whether they are in Pakistan or Nigeria or Lebanon, or United States or Canada they tend to agree on four things number one God is one mm. secondly Muhammad is the messenger of God number three the Quran is their holy book number four Palestinians experienced injustice and the West turned a deaf ear to their grievances is
2: this part of the establishment of the Muslim Brotherhood? Is that there in the very beginning with the creation of these movements in order to fight on behalf of the Palestinian injustice that they, you know, whether real or perceived that they see this as an injustice and that's why these groups begin?
1: We assume in the West that Muslims biggest need is freedom uh, and democracy. And reality, what they are looking for is justice. Hmm. So it's two different paradigms. We have our paradigms. We assume that their biggest need is freedom and democracy. In In their case, they believe that their biggest need is justice and security. These are the two big things for Muslim countries. And I think part of the problem we're experiencing in the Middle East, in the Arab world, is difference in worldviews and difference in perspectives. So they see injustice committed against the Palestinians and it has been going nonstop since 1948 and there are events that prepared for that event. And this they see as the longest injustice in history for any nation on earth.
2: Um, we don't often... Think of it in those terms. You're right. We we look at the Muslim world and we think they need democracy, they need freedom, and our worldview and their worldview. It just seems like we're looking at two completely different yeah. ways of life. Yeah. So thinking back to the beginnings of Al Qaeda and their strategy to uh, o- have the United States overextend itself, what are some of the things that they begin doing to implement that strategy?
1: For instance, uh, the U.S. cool. Called- was mm-hmm. hit by a boat full with uh, explosives. And this was during the last year of President Clinton. They wanted very much America to attack them, but they didn't. America did not do that. And mm-hmm. so they felt like uh, a sense of uh, defeat and uh, Pessimism that what they were hoping to accomplish was not accomplished. So they started doing planning for something bigger, something yeah. that will be, uh, you know, uh, kind of demand world, a response. world news big time. Yeah. And so they, they recruited people to come from Europe, like one of them is Muhammad Atta. Muhammad Atta was living in Germany and he is an Egyptian And he saw Germany full of cathedrals, but no Christians practicing a relationship with God. So he saw the empty shell of Christendom rather than a living relationship with Jesus Christ. And in 1982, he was watching the news and uh, he saw Israel invading Lebanon, South Lebanon. And he got so angry that he wanted to become a fundamentalist. So he went to mosque and started asking, how can I have training in Afghanistan? So he found a, somebody to help him. And he went to Afghanistan and got the training along with others. And they were given orders to do a certain thing at the right time. So they came to the States and uh, they, were, uh, you know, by more, uh, they spoke more than one language. Uh, They trained, some of them trained as pilots, and the the 2001 attack took place on 9-11.
2: And this was the the event that would demand a response?
1: Yeah, and And the response took place with the invasion of Afghanistan three weeks after the events. I personally think... I wish the U.S. administration had a different approach rather than go for a regime change in Afghanistan, removing the Taliban. If they immediately hit al-Qaeda on the borders of Afghanistan and Pakistan, it could have presented better results in terms of demolishing the core of al-Qaeda at that time, which was relatively very small. Instead, they wanted to do a regime change, and we're still stuck with the consequences of that time. By the way, President Bush at that time was grooming somebody who was a moderate leader called Mas'ud, who was being prepared to become the new president of Afghanistan. But Ayman Zawahiri uh, uh, organized an attempt to assassinate him through two people who played the role of journalist, Arab journalists. And one, the photographer had a explosives in his camera. Instead of the video, they had explosives. And these two men uh, committed suicide and at the same time killed Masoud. So the guy who was groomed to become the new president was assassinated by Ayman Zawahiri's men. So Al-Qaeda doesn't... I, I think
2: I remember at this point there was great hope that Al-Qaeda was dismantled. But it
1: sounds like they just grew. They escaped. They escaped and even multiplied. The, of course. You have Al-Qaeda core and then you have Al-Qaeda aspired and Al-Qaeda affiliates. So the core of Al-Qaeda was on the borders at that time during the 9-11 event. If America hit right away, the whole world was sympathetic with the United States. Instead, they prepared for a war that takes time. And th- by that time, all these people escaped from that place, and it became a different objective. Rather than al-Qaeda, it became a regime change and uh, uh, conquering a taliban
2: And then from there... We see the invasion of Iraq, which, of course, is surrounded with so much controversy. At that point in time, is there al-Qaeda going on in Iraq? Because now, of course, with, with ISIS, we see um, Iraq is where everything is, is kind of being played out. And, I mean, I know that we have uh, Zarqawi there in Iraq, but with the invasion of Iraq, how impactful was that with what we see happening today?
1: Okay. You mentioned Zarqawi, Zarqawi belonged to Al-Qaeda, and he was in Iraq, and he was a bloodthirsty kind of person and started fighting the Shiites. In other words, the move towards sectarianism between the Sunnis and Shiites became big time with Zarqawi. Uh, He is responsible for the assassination, for the killing of so many Shiite Muslims in Iraq. Furthermore, the assassination of another prominent Islamic imam who was groomed to take a position of leadership in Iraq. He also was, uh, was responsible for his death. Well, finally, America was able to kill Zarqawi, but by that time... Uh, violence escalated so much. And uh, in Iraq, by the way, uh, the Iraq war, one whole year before the beginning of the Iraq war in 2002, March in 2002, an important conference took place in Beirut, Lebanon for the Arab League. The Arab League is an annual event that takes place every year where the presidents and kings of the Arab world meet together to discuss their burning issues. in
2: are, are other countries involved in these discussions, or is this the Arab League meets Just the Arab, together? 22
1: okay. Arab countries. Okay. And during that year, in 2002, one whole year before the Iraq war, they met in Beirut, Lebanon. Every year they meet at a different capital. That year it was in Beirut. And at that time, King Fahad of Saudi Arabia was sick. He didn't attend. Representing him was Prince Abdullah, who is now the current King of Saudi Arabia. He was authorized with all the power of Saudi Arabia, financial and political, etc. And his aim was to convince all the Arab countries, the 22 countries, to commit to a peaceful relationship with Israel. It was a difficult conference. Finally, he was able to convince every one of them. Wow. The last two, the most difficult two were Libya and Syria. Finally, even Libya and Syria committed. He was so elated. Of course, he was all the time on the phone with King Fahd telling him the progress and the news. When the conference was over, right away, he flew to the States and went to Crawford, Texas, where President Bush was on vacation. And I assume he tried to persuade President Bush and the administration that the road to transforming the Middle East does not go through Baghdad. It goes through Jerusalem. He tried to convince them, we will help you with Saddam Hussein. We know that he is a sadist and he is a dictator. But the road to transform the Middle East is focus on peace between Israel and the Palestinian. If that huge challenge is solved, everything else will be easy to deal with. They wouldn't listen to him.
2: Because invading Iraq would have put all of that none of that would have happened that's with the right. invasion of Iraq. Yeah. That's that's a, a really that's a heavy moment to think about how history, the world has changed from that one moment. Yeah. That one decision. Alright, this week's sponsors.
0: CIU. CIU. CIU educates people from a bib Biblical. Biblical world review. Worldview. view. World world review.
2: Yeah, well, we <laughs> CIU educates people from a biblical worldview to impact the nations with the message of Christ. Howard, what'd you think, man? I know that's the first time you've heard that. I was there during the interview, so what'd you think?
0: Yeah, no, I mean, you, you know, like, the first thing that kind of comes to my mind is that, man, there's a lot of names. And yeah. I, I think for you listeners, you probably, you know, if you haven't been keeping up with this, you, you know, maybe you think that you're overwhelmed by the names. But I, I'm also really just um, overwhelmed by how much humanity is in this entire process of um, the growing fundamental uh, Islam uh, growing into action and execution, like how, how it's actually coming into being. And, uh, there's like stories behind it. There's like people behind it. And I thought that was really interesting because sometimes you on the news, like you hear a story and it's just this execution, but you don't know any story behind it. You don't know what's happened, you know, to, to, to bring them to this point of extreme, you know, um, you know, in some in some cases, sacrifice where they blow themselves up. Mm. In, in, I'm talking about in their worldview or their their, their eyes, but uh, but also just you know extreme violence. And there's got to be a story behind it because, you know, like just we were talking about in a couple podcasts before, well, a lot, I guess, podcasts before, but we were talking about the homegrown terrorists, like how they go from just a normal girl that reads Harry Potter and wants to become a bride of ISIS. Right, right. And and there's got to be a story behind it, and it's really neat to hear the story of how this developed. And it really, I I don't know, the word that I keep, uh, the theme that I keep hearing about is injustice.
2: Yeah, I thought that was definitely interesting when... uh Nabil says that we have our perception of what the Muslim world needs, freedom and democracy. And from what he was saying from the Muslim worldview is what they want is justice
0: and security. Right. And you know what, like not to put a too fine a point on it, but the, you know, the idea I think behind injustice, I think that rings true for all of humanity. So it kind of makes it more accessible to me. Because like, for instance, let, let's go back to the American Revolution. I mean, the American Revolution was started because of a series of injustices that we believed as Americans that, well, you know, as, as British right. <laughs> colonists, you That's know, right. but we believed that it was so unjust, you know, some of the things that they were doing, the British uh, um, uh, motherland. Right. Yeah. We're doing that, uh, you know, we felt like we needed to fight against it. I mean, right. I to mean, go to war. Taxation without representation. Exactly. Yeah. And you have
2: people that will rise up and, you know, that's, what's really interesting and and not to minimize anything that any of these people have done. Um, we, we recognize, and I think Howard and I would agree that the, anybody that would take the life of another person, um, regardless of whatever their ideology is, that, that that can be a really difficult call. Even, even people that are doing it as a, as a job, I'm sure it's difficult and hard to do that. And these guys that do it out of a religious ideology, um, while I understand, I think where they're coming from, and I think that's what Nabil does a good job of—is helping us to understand where they're coming from. It it really just feels like so wrong. Yeah, it never—it you know excu- I mean? never excuses it. It's just so wrong, and I think back and even in our own Christian history where that's been done, and I just think,
0: what were you thinking? Right, it's just so extreme. Right. You know, even I mean, uh, today, you know, we we have discussions about heresy and, you know, in Christian circles there that, you know, once in a while you find somebody that's a heretic, that that, that people would call a heretic. Right. Yeah. Nobody's going to kill them.
2: Not that I, not that I'm aware of, or at least I don't think anybody would approve of it. Right. Right. Not like the good old days burning at the stake. That's the kind of the, I think some people feel that way. Like, oh man, when we
0: used to burn people at the stake and I'm thinking, really? Right. Uh, you, that's the good old days. I don't know. <laughs> right. And and the other thing is that we, uh, on the other hand, we separate ourselves so much from that history that we're like, oh, we would never do that. Oh, yeah. And that's not that far away. Right. Exactly. So when you look at the Muslim, and I'm not saying that, uh, again, just as Trevor's saying, that it's okay. It's not at all. Um, mm-hmm. But you look at the, 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 the radical Muslim, you know, that believes that terrorism is their calling, or, you know, they wouldn't call it terrorism, but you know what I'm saying? Um, the, the idea that they they would go to that length, you know, that's not that far removed. No, uh, and from I think where when, we are.
2: Well, what Doctor Jabour does a good job of is humanizing people by giving sort of the backstory, and right. then you see where they're coming from. And I think it's okay. Like, okay, uh, let me just give a brief example. Um, so, if I talk about the the establishment of Islamic fundamentalism and the rise of Islamic extremism within you know this current century. And I'm giving that lecture at a church. Um, I'm always a little bit hesitant because I'm afraid people will feel like when you tell their side of the story that you're somehow being unpatriotic yeah, or you're, on that their you're side. affirming them. Right. And I think Nabil Jabour does an excellent job, particularly in his book, about trying to understand what are the underlying causes, both uh, individually, you know, these people as individuals, and then also the context of which they're in. Right. And then also the systems that are in place globally that kind of all work together to get these guys to become what they end up becoming. And Zawahiri is a good, a good example of that. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, he I, I'm not 100% sure, but I believe he was 14 years old when he started uh, working in some of these more Islamic uh, extreme or fundamentalist uh, groups like the Muslim Brotherhood. He was a young guy. Yeah, so super influenced. And you can see... Uh, I thought that was interesting that Saeed uh lawyer was his uncle, mm-hmm. Ayman Zawahiri's uncle. Right. And you can see pictures. If you go online, you can type in Zawahiri and you see him now as this old man. And <laughs> But you can also find pictures of him in black and white. And even, uh, I believe there's some video footage, if I'm not mistaken, of him basically protesting his being in jail as a
0: young man. And he's
2: a young guy. Right.
0: Sacrifice. Full of, full of fire. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So anyway, there's a, wait, I want you to go back to what we were talking about before, like how we're not that far removed. Um, just clear that up because, um, I'm thinking that, but I think it's probably coming from a lot of our conversations of, you know, like what we would do if we were in that situation. Right. And well,
2: I've had conversations with Christians that feel like, um, you know, what would we do if, there was a, a Muslim president and he started making decisions that we didn't agree with as Christians. And I've seen, I've heard some Christians and some of the things that they've come up with. And right. it concerns me.
0: Right. Cause it sounds like what they're doing. Yeah.
2: Because there, they, there's a, there's a perception at least, uh, and maybe even a reality of injustice. Right. Feeling as though they can't fully be Christian. And then there's some underlying belief systems about the foundational, Uh, heritage of the country and so it's not so far to see how a person can can go from being a you know fundamentalist in any religious ideology a fundamentalist to quickly having those fundamental core values uh
0: you could imposed upon or stepped on right or or, you know an injustice or oppressed and then
2: you feel the need to rise up to uh protect um you feel the need to rise up in order to uh you know uh, propagate your your ideology, and so we've we've seen it in history. It's not that far, and I, what right. I meant by not that far removed is uh, these guys are still alive. You know, we're not talking about hundreds of years ago. Yeah, we're talking about 1966. Right. So anyway, uh, Ayman Zawahiri, current leader of Al Qaeda, um, he was definitely the mastermind. I think in 9/11, uh, Bin Laden was by all means the leader of Al Qaeda, but as far as the uh, you know, the real, the real brains of Al Qaeda. I think Zawahiri was, um, was
0: he's, there. he's the guy that made it happen. Right. Then Bin Laden, something about, uh, him being more like a figurehead had the contacts, the money. Contacts, money, charisma. Right.
2: Um, the yeah. face, the face right. of, right. Yeah. But Zawahiri's, uh, the guy. now, and you know, the things that are happening today with, with Iraq. And I thought that was interesting too, when, uh, Dr. Jabour was talking about Iraq in Al-Qaeda today. So the next episode really is when we get into what's going on today in Iraq with ISIL or ISIS or IS, depending on who you ask. Right. So, but uh, Zawahiri is there at the beginning. One of the things that's interesting, I just want to point out something that uh, Zawahiri said. Let me see if I have this quote here. Yeah, he says, uh, it was after 9 nine eleven. you know, um, he, we said something along the lines of uh, George W. Bush was addressing a joint session of Congress and said Americans are asking... Uh, Why do they hate us? And the response that was given, let me just pull up the quote so I can get this right, is uh, they hate what they see right here in this chamber, a democratically elected government. Their leaders are self-appointed. They hate our freedoms, our freedom of religion, our freedom of speech, and our freedom to vote and assemble and disagree with each other. And I think that's what Jabor was getting at, is that we have this idea that the Muslim world needs democracy and freedom. Right. That would solve all their problems. Right. And so... I'm on Zawahiri, and this was actually in response to the headscarf ban in France. Oh, right. Okay. Now, we'll get in a different episode. We're going to talk about France, but this is just kind of leading into that. When you think of uh, Zawahiri, he says uh, about the headscarves, and he's talking about the, the West, the reason that, that they're against the West, and he says, the Zionist Crusader West. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Yeah, that's all of us then, I guess, right? Yeah. <laughs> Loaded. terminology. Yeah considers freedom sacred as long as it's the freedom to steal the wealth of others. Wow. When freedom becomes a means of resisting the West, it becomes terrorism. The burning of villages along with their people in Afghanistan, demolishing houses over their sleeping residents in Palestine, and the killing of children in Iraq and stealing its oil under false pretext, tormenting of prisoners in the cages of Guantanamo. Let's see what else here. The right the United States has granted itself to kill any human being arrest anyone, anywhere, the banning of nuclear weapons everywhere except Israel, all these crimes show the scope and the extent of its savagery and its war against Islam and Muslims.
0: Wow. So that says a lot more than what Bush said.
2: (laughs) Right. And I mean, I think we all knew that there was probably more to it, but if we really want to understand where, you know, the enemy is coming from, you right. can, because their message is out there. And Zawahiri has had that message. And he's been around for a while. He's not a guy that just kind of popped on the scenes. Actually, the, the Boston bomber is being uh, tried. They're, they're picking the jury right now. And whenever the, the Boston bombings happened, I thought it was interesting because people were saying, where are these guys from? And they're from from Dagestan. And the question was, nobody has ever really done anything in Dagestan that was Uh, related to terrorism. Hmm. But guess who was arrested in the late 90s in Dagestan? Who? Ayman Zawahiri. Huh. And so they've been looking for something this whole time, right? Since the beginning of the the Muslim Brotherhood and the formation of Al-Qaeda and the invasion taking over of Iraq, taking over of uh, Afghanistan and now Iraq, this Al-Qaeda movement has been looking for one thing in particular, and this is the reason... And this is next week's episode. This is the reason why Baghdadi has claimed to be the Islamic
0: caliphate and bin Laden never did. Interesting. So that's what we're gonna hear next week? Yep. That's awesome. All right. Well, thank you guys so much for listening. Uh thank you for all of your uh really cool reviews actually on yeah. iTunes. If you could and you're listening to this podcast, you really love it, um, you know, write a review. It really helps us out. It makes a big difference and feel free to write us questions, comments, uh, the email address is comments
2: at truth about com.
0: Yes, please. And then we'll try to address, uh, some of those comments, uh, on the show. And if not, maybe just, uh, on the um, comment board, especially if there's a lot. And I think there's probably going to be a lot. And Mm -hmm. uh, just to let you know that Trevor and I aren't the kind of people that, uh, don't listen. We, we do want to hear what you have to say. We do want to, uh, engage in that. And, uh, give it a fair shake yeah
2: and we do realize it's polarizing content guys trust me this is not an easy discussion to have
0: right and we think about that a lot and so i know that even if you don't agree and still listen because we have podcast listeners like that they listen to us uh i think they like us they don't agree with us and that's okay and i'm okay with that (laughs) so i mean i think that's that's a pretty cool thing anyway so uh yeah comments write in and also uh, uh write reviews for us yep see you next week